Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS. And that link will be in the show notes. If you are putting a lot of stress on the body from under eating over exercising, you can experience, you know, abnormalities with androgens that are unrelated to what's going on with the ovaries. So you can also experience some of those kind of classic PCOS symptoms in terms of, you know, the cystic acne, the unwanted hair growth. Stress is the inflammation that robs us of life, energy, and happiness. Our typical solutions for gut health and hormone balance have let a lot of us down. We're over-medicated and underserved. At The Less Stressed Life, we're a community of health-savvy women exploring solutions outside of our traditional Western medicine toolbox and training to raise the bar and change our stories. Each week, our hope is that you leave our sessions inspired to learn, grow, and share these stories to raise the bar in your life and home. Access to functional or specialized medicine testing and standard blood work is a big piece of personalizing care plans to help our clients succeed. But getting accounts with multiple labs and ordering and tracking results from many different web portals slows efficiency by bogging us down in admin work. This is why I'm completely obsessed with our podcast sponsor, Rupa Health. It's a single portal that allows you to order from over 20 specialty labs in one incredibly simple dashboard. I'm talking less than 30 seconds to set up your free account and about 30 seconds to order the labs you need. All the results are in one place and I can securely send clients their results with the click of a button. A big advantage for our clients is that standard blood work can be ordered for almost two thirds less than other direct to consumer lab sites. Rupa is a lab concierge, so they send the lab invoices on your behalf if a client pays for their own labs. They help them get set up with a lab draw, navigate testing questions, and they provide the requisition forms. It's literally a dream. Go sign up for free to help streamline your practice and simplify ordering labs for your clients at rupahealth.com. That's R-U-P-A health.com and let them know I sent you when you sign up. You can also check out the show notes for this episode for a short video walkthrough of how I use Rupa Health in my own practice. All right, today on The Less Stress Life, I have Jillian Greaves. Jillian is a functional dietitian and women's health specialist. She provides comprehensive nutrition and lifestyle counseling to women with a special emphasis on PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome, hormone balance, and digestive health. She helps people identify and address the root causes of their hormone and digestive symptoms naturally 
using advanced lab testing, personalized nutrition, and supportive lifestyle therapies as the first line of intervention. She runs a virtual private practice in Boston, Massachusetts, and is the creator of the Empowered PCOS program. It's her mission to empower women to take back control of their health, reclaim their confidence, and experience life at its fullest potential. Welcome, Jillian. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thanks. So I got to spend some time with Jillian eating oysters and octopus a few weeks ago. It was lovely. And uh, I had to get after her because she had not booked an interview yet. And so here we finally are after uh, a couple of months. So we'll get into, we have some past episodes on PCOS. I'll link those in the show notes. But today, Jillian and I are going to dive into some different types of PCOS. I think often our past episodes talked about testing, how long it takes, or actually more so diagnosis, how long it takes to get diagnosed. But we didn't really dive in so much to some of the lesser known, one of my favorite types of PCOS now, but the lesser known one, which is adrenal PCOS. So to set the stage, Jillian, a couple things, first of all. First of all, tell us a little bit of your own story, because that always helps us connect to you. And second of all, I want to jump into why you ended up in the PCOS world more so, or like why this ended up being the emphasis, and then we can get into types of PCOS. Awesome. Yeah. So in terms of kind of how I got into all of this and just my own personal journey, there is kind of a personal angle, professional angle. And I think I'll address all of the questions by kind of walking you through that. But with my own personal health journey, I think for most of us, uh, you know, there's a variety of reasons we got into this space and kind of specialize in, in what we do. But I think many of us have had our own personal health struggles and challenges that have really kind of motivated us to look outside the box and led us to practice kind of how we do now. So for me, with my own personal kind of health and healing journey, it started almost a decade ago, I would say about a decade ago now, where, you know, at the time I was in just a really busy season of life. You know, I was working full time in a pretty uh, demanding research setting and going to grad school at the same time and generally just had a lot of, a lot of stressors in life. And on top of that, I was, you know, eating predominantly a plant-based diet. I was doing lots of HIIT training, running half marathons, and I'd also been on hormonal birth control for 10 or 11 years. And I started to experience some really unpleasant symptoms, things like eczema, uh, hives, my hair was thinning, I was experiencing a lot of anxiety, bloating, I was getting you know breakouts just in terms of acne, some of that cystic jawline acne. And was, you know, really confused because in my mind, I'm doing all the things, right? I'm eating healthy, I'm working out. And, you know, it just, it didn't make sense to me based off the training that I had. So I sought out care from my, you know, primary care physician, expressed my concerns and, you know, started to actually kind of investigate, you know, what this birth control pill was kind of, you know, doing to my body and kind of what role that might be playing, given that I'd been taking it for a decade and, you know, hadn't really investigated that or considered, you know, the role that that was playing. So went to talk to my PCP about it, who basically laughed in my face, you know, sent me out of her office in tears and told me, you know, basically, you know, you're the picture of health, you're totally fine, go see the dermatologist, you know, go, you know, if you're anxious, we can talk about anxiety meds, 
And I was just kind of being thrown around from, you know, one provider to the next and feeling really, really frustrated. And I also just felt like, you know, I was not going to settle for here, take this medication to kind of band-aid, you know, X symptom. So I really started to kind of dive deep into, you know, female physiology, kind of questioning how my own diet and lifestyle, you know, and stressors were supporting or not supporting rather my body. And that really kind of brought me into the world of just kind of women's health, functional medicine. And, you know, it was really kind of the first time that I realized that there was a lot more to the story when it came to birth control and my health. So that's really when I kickstarted my journey to changing the way I approached, you know, lifestyle, changing the way I approached my diet and also took myself off the birth control, which was a whole, whole nother journey in itself. But I was really hacking things together for a long time and, you know, getting more advanced training in, in the functional medicine and women's health space. But I will be very honest that, you know, even at that time with graduate degree, undergraduate degree, becoming a registered dietitian, all these trainings that I've had, it took a long time. It took a long time to feel like I was in a place where I wasn't experiencing the really outward, you know, unpleasant symptoms and that I had a really much better pulse on, you know, my body and kind of understanding how it was communicating with me. And that was really uh, motivating for me to just want to provide women with the support that I wished I had had when I was really, you know, kind of struggling way back. So that was kind of my long-winded personal health journey in terms of why I became so passionate about women's health, you know, in this work. And then from a professional lens, my first job as a dietitian was as an outpatient dietitian in endocrinology at a big Boston hospital, which I was super jazzed about. Like, this is exactly what I wanted to do. You know, so I went into that setting and was going to, you know, change the world for women and, you know, all these different hormone conditions. And actually, this was really my first big exposure to working with women with PCOS in this setting. I didn't really get a ton of exposure in my internship. And, you know, I had all these young women uh, diagnosed with PCOS being sent to my office for nutrition counseling that were, you know, physicians were telling them, you know, get educated on a 1200 calorie diet. Here's some appetite suppressants, the metformin, the spironolactone. Nope, you have, you know, anxiety. Here's the, you know, anxiety meds. And it was like, you know, all the medications, super restrictive approaches they were recommending and these women weren't getting any better. If anything, you know, often they were getting worse or it was kind of this yo-yo situation um, where they were dependent on medications. And once they suppressed that symptom, something else popped up and it didn't sit well with me. And, you know, I think to layer on even more there, I was just all nutrition education at this big, you know, hospital was, it's like, you know, it was just so old school, right? Everything was fixated on calories. And, you know, I felt like I was just, you know, fighting against all the things trying to provide women with any type of good quality, like support and information. And I just became really frustrated and felt like, hey, there's got to be a better way here. And that's where I kind of dove specifically into the PCOS piece of things. And I started seeing clients privately just on the side. And, you know, in addition to working my outpatient job and, was getting really incredible results and decided, you know what, I want to do my own thing, do it on my own time and support women in a way that, you know, I know is effective and really supportive. So I had not kind of uh, dove into anything thinking I was going to be specializing in PCOS, but I found that there was just such a tremendous need for better support for these women. 
Yeah, that was a real buzzkill to listen to. You know, you forget that that's like the common approach, but 1200 calorie diet, metformin, first line therapy for basically metabolic dysfunction, aka diabetes, or that's usually the first line medication for blood sugar support under meds. And then spironolactone dumps testosterone, which is interesting because I want to get into the types of PCOS and this would be like totally worthless (laughs) for the type of PCOS that we're going to maybe jump into. I mean, typically. So I almost feel like we can compile some PCOS myths like a PCOS thing that I feel like is mainstream that kind of irks me is that like you can't have a baby if you have PCOS. I think that's like so ridiculous. Like who in the world is telling women this or that you have to eat less and exercise more, like also a useless. And sometimes we'll get into this in like one second here. Why does this make it worse? So actually, can we just categorize the types of PCOS real quick? Yeah. So kind of the predominant types of PCOS are going to be insulin resistant PCOS. So, you know, kind of blood sugar issues, adrenal factor PCOS. So kind of cortisol issues, uh, stress response issues, post pill PCOS, which is one that's also, I would say, not talked about, not supported, you know, enough at all. And then inflammatory and gut driven PCOS. Those are kind of the four predominant types. So usually... And I'm not sure how you feel. We can talk about stats for PCOS in general, but so you've got these subtypes and I don't know if these subtypes are even recognized conventionally. I don't know that they are. I'm not under the impression when I get people with adrenal style PCOS in my office, they're usually getting the recommendation to eat less and exercise more, which is actually going to drive them further into a deficit or a they're going to be worse. They're going to be much worse off. So what do you know about the stats of PCOS in general? And then you may or may not know or or whatnot, but on stats of like, how often do you see, what's kind of the split in practice for you that you're seeing these? And I'm sure there's a little bit of overlap that can happen. Like insulin resistance can overlap with inflammatory PCOS, right? And post-pill PCOS, that can be resolved, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe arguably adrenal PCOS can be resolved, I would assume, right? So yeah. uh, what are you seeing for stats in the big picture? And then in your practice, how are you feeling about the prevalence of these different types or whatnot? Yeah. And, you know, I will say, I agree with you that there's a lot of overlap often between these and people don't, you know, always fit into a perfect little box of having one type or two types. And sometimes, you know, it's a variety of these types. So I think it's important not to get too bent out of shape in terms of trying to classify, you know, your specific type of PCOS. But I do think it's helpful to be aware of these things because these are the big drivers essentially that are contributing to the progression of, you know, PCOS. So I think it's helpful to be aware of them. And, you know, most women gravitate towards one or two more so than others in terms of what feels really relevant for them. But definitely, you know, to your point as well, these things aren't tested for specifically or classified in any type of a clear way in our conventional healthcare system either. And mostly what's being paid attention to is kind of the insulin resistant PCOS type since it is generally the most predominant. And I think the most recent statistic that I've read is that anywhere from 70 to 75% of women with PCOS have some degree of insulin resistance and possibly more. I think insulin resistance is under kind of identified in PCOS PCOS because women with PCOS that are experiencing shifts with weight are often the only ones that are getting that investigative work and those full workups. But oftentimes, you know, providers are not testing, you know, fasting, glucose, fasting, insulin, A1C, like getting a good picture at what's happening with blood sugar. 
And if someone is, you know, not experiencing weight issues, they can still have some of those metabolic abnormalities, but they're often not being investigated at all. So yeah, so insulin resistant is kind of the most prevalent and most well-recognized definitely in our conventional system. But in practice, I see a lot of all of these things. And I would say because there is a, a big lack of support for some of the non, you know, insulin resistant types, I'm seeing a lot of more of those in my practice. So with the adrenal factor PCOS, the post pill PCOS, I think women are seeking out, you know, working with providers like myself more so because they're just falling through the cracks in our conventional healthcare system. Well, that brings up a couple other questions for me. So I looked this up, first of all, in 2020, Center for Disease Control and Prevention said PCOS prevalence is between 6 and 12%. So up to one in every 10 women, we could just estimate. But I think the stat is that it takes seven years to get diagnosed. And what I'm wondering, and so there's probably just a lot of people walking around with lack of diagnosis, but I don't think what we're talking about here is very common knowledge with these different types. And so do you find that you get women that don't have a diagnosis of PCOS, but hear a podcast like this and then go in and self-diagnose because PCOS comes, usually you get a positive diagnosis, two out of three criteria, irregular cycle, symptoms of high testosterone, usually hair down the center of the face of like mustache, chin around nipples, belly button. So those are more elevated testosterone symptoms typically. And then undeveloped follicles, on the ovaries, aka cysts. This always seem like a worse word than undeveloped follicles in my brain, uh, ultrasound. So some of the past conversation we've had in other episodes has been that you cannot just diagnose PCOS via ultrasound only, that you need to have two of these three criteria, et cetera. However, you know, you could feel like just not awesome and it could fit under this umbrella piece. What you one would do functionally for PCOS would be useful for all women, I'm going to make an argument, most of it. I mean, because if you're supporting your adrenals, if you're supporting your blood sugar, if you're supporting your hormones in general, if you're supporting your gut health, helpful for everyone. So what I want to ask is, do you get people that don't have a diagnosis at all and kind of self-diagnosing themselves based on this criteria? Because it's like, mention these three criteria and it's like, well, I I fit all three or, or two or the three. So do you get that? And then I want to know also, Conventionally, what happens to women after a diagnosis? Now, some of them are going to get referred to endocrinology if they have more insulin type PCOS, but if they don't, then what happens to them? Yeah, great question. So to speak to your first question about you know people who don't have that formal diagnosis, I see that all the time. So women will often reach out, you know, to work together and they'll say, you know, I have all of these symptoms. And sometimes they've even been told by their doctor that you probably have PCOS. And it's kind of just like, you know it's poo-pooed in in a sense. And maybe they can't achieve, you know, a a diagnosis off of like the Rotterdam criteria that you just described because they are on hormonal birth control or they're on, you know, a medication that's impacting the ability to like, you know, assess a certain kind of factor that would lead to that diagnosis. But I do see that all the time in terms of women really present very classically in terms of like all the things they experience. They've maybe tried to investigate further and haven't been super well, you know, supported in doing that. And in those cases too, what I will always say is yes. I mean, it's always, of course, helpful to have a a clear diagnosis if we're able to achieve that. If not, it doesn't mean we can't dive in and start working on all of those fundamental things that you mentioned are going to be, you know, super, super supportive for women with PCOS, but also just women in general, right? So the balancing blood sugar, supporting gut health, the stress management and improving stress resilience, lowering inflammation, 
So, you know, I think it's something that I do see very often in practice. And as I interview colleagues and friends that have successful businesses, you know, we have a mutual friend, Dion, and she works in cancer. And what I keep finding is like, oh, we have the same pillars of what we do with clients. You know, there just might be a different lens on the top, which I think I hope is useful for people to hear because there's this expression, success, leave clues, or like my brain just searches out common denominators. So I might be kind of like a weirdo. I'm just always looking at like, what is the connection between all of these things? And so that one's a real duh. So I want to dive a little bit into adrenal PCOS, which is, I think, an underrated one. I feel like it was an area where I kind of got whiplash for about six months in my practice because people were being referred in as PCOS. And then I'm like, oh, this is not insulin or blood sugar type PCOS. I mean, yes, there are blood sugar issues, but not in the same capacity. They're more like just unstable, hangry, feeling shaky, all those things. Because with adrenal PCOS, you're going to have that as well because the adrenals secrete DHEA, which helps regulate blood sugar. And if your adrenals are in a toilet, you know, you're not going to produce those hormones. So let's jump into adrenal PCOS and how that's characterized. And I believe, so I don't know, I think you mentioned this briefly, we didn't totally qualify it. I don't know if there is a, for sure, people get a conventional diagnosis of adrenal style PCOS, or if that's only a functional area, you would probably know that better than I would. But how do we characterize adrenal PCOS versus others? Yeah. So actually, I mean, what I found is that it's it's recognized in research. So you can read, you know, papers on it and it's very, you know, kind of clearly a PCOS type or, you know, kind of that driver. But I find there's something that gets lost in translation from research to practice, which, you know, we could say that about a lot of things, but, you know, you can, can pull up plenty of papers that are kind of investigating that adrenal component with PCOS. but it would be very, very rare for me to, you know, speak with a client that had a provider who's actually, you know, kind of diagnosed them with that adrenal factor, adrenal dominant PCOS. And, you know, or very rare for me to talk to a conventional provider, you know, maybe if I'm, we're collaborating on a client for them to have that even on their radar, mm-hmm. which I find is very interesting. And I think a, a big piece of that is because, you know, the tools for supporting, you know, PCOS in a conventional toolbox are PCOS, low-cal diet, spiral metformin. So it's not really, I think, on people's radars because they don't have that medication in their toolbox to treat the thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's very lifestyle. Yeah. I mean, there obviously, if you can get some high-quality supplementation in tandem with lifestyle, you could heal faster, for sure right? With the, if your adrenals are in rough shape. But I have this conversation with people a lot. People will complain about conventional care. And my thought is more, hey, your doctor's just as burned out as you are. And we just don't recognize adrenal issues. The testing is like, well, you're basically dead before it's a problem, unfortunately. And even some of our functional testing is not... It has issues. And I so I think that you can fall into some issues sometimes if you are just relying only on a test and you're like expecting that test to be perfect. I've had people who are like 100% adrenal mess type things and their urinary or salivary cortisol testing came back looking kind of funny because cute problem, 
If you're looking at just cortisol testing, your abdominal adiposity, so any like stomach fat can actually secrete cortisol and depending on the method of testing can make it look off. So this is, my point is just that you must look at things from symptoms. And so adrenal symptoms, let's just like run through some of those that would say like, you can always, I always think like, what is a common denominator? You can always love on your adrenals because that's loving on mitochondria. So symptoms of like your adrenals may not be in beautiful shape, might be just inability to wake up with energy, being exhausted in the afternoon. I know those are big topics, but they are. Some more obvious ones be like from sitting to standing or laying to sitting up, feeling lightheaded, always registering on the lower end of blood pressure. For me, I used to have a little dull ache above my kidneys. Like I'd be like, it would be like a lower back pain. And you know, those symptoms that you've had, Jillian, you know what this is like, like I've had skin issues as well. Like it's a hallmark of my medical history. And so until you have that issue, it would be hard to describe like how it is for you, right? Type thing. And so if I had not experienced this like ache in my lower back, I could not have told you and then supported my adrenals and had it go away immediately. Could not have told you that that was what that was. I always, I also have described it to people. Like it also feels like someone pressed all the air out of me at the end of the day. Like I'm just like, bull like dead. And my, I don't even know how low, I mean, I just knew my adrenals were in rough shape, but I'd have to look at my re- most recent testing and then compare it to other people. But my point is, is like, there's all kinds of symptoms. Would you add other, several other things? Like what pops into your head when you think of like adrenals are in trouble, you better support them. Yeah, definitely. I feel like some of everything that you kind of just described, I don't know, did you mention insomnia or like disrupted sleep? I didn't that's a big one where it's like, you know, there's that chronic fatigue, but then there's also often I will see just sleep disruption, either difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep or both. Like um, sleeper, especially I would say, right? Yep. Yeah. A hundred percent. Definitely that afternoon slump. Also that situation where no matter how much you sleep, it's just, you know, you feel like you're in a fog, really tired. Low libido is a big one, which I think driven by a variety of things. But I think when stress is really persistent and there's that adrenal factor component, there's just no libido in my experience. Well, and I think let's talk about that for a hot second, just because this had come up. So I just want to talk about this clinically for fun. You and I, I know we both use the Dutch test sometimes. It's not always like a I don't start with the Dutch test personally because I like to start with foundations that influence hormones instead of like, here, let's do the hormone test and then jump all over the place. That's just my preference. But sometimes people love that baseline. I know you use it in different instances, more than one way to achieve an outcome for sure. So use Dutch test sometimes when the testosterone is really low. Sometimes that's what we're thinking about with libido, right? It's a common thing possibly. It just when you're exhausted, how could you have libido? But anyway, if your testosterone is low, we're usually going to attribute that for sure as a libido factor. And what I find is that if cortisol is also low, aka your adrenals cannot produce an essential hormone because of long-term stress, that it's really hard to get that testosterone up. It's like broken. Because some of the ways that we produce testosterone would be, I talked about this a few minutes ago, if your blood sugar is really unstable and you're hangry, your adrenals produce DHEA, right? That hormone that kind of helps buffer or helps with blood sugar regulation, so to speak. And that can be partially a source of how we create testosterone in the body. And so I hope this is making sense. Like if the first domino, if your adrenals don't have good mitochondrial function, how can you produce the DHEA? And if you can't do that, how do you produce the testosterone very beautifully? So I've just been intrigued by this because I've done things to support testosterone and not gotten the type of results I wanted because the cortisol is flatlined. And so I'm just trying to get like really obvious on like why this would happen to someone like, yes. So with adrenal PCOS, I think we're talking about essentially the adrenals not working. Cortisol is usually going to look low. And would you say another hallmark is that 
usually with PCOS, testosterone is higher, or that's like a hallmark of it. But with adrenal PCOS, it's usually going to look lower on this testing, right? Often. Okay. Often, not always. Got it. Are there other factors? Like if you have someone coming into your practice, how are you helping them identify what kind of PCOS they have? Because that's going to change the plan of action. Yeah. So I'm working with someone one-on-one, really just kind of diving into a deep assessment. And I think also really understanding their timeline and the progression of things, because I think, you know, depending on how long, you know, certain dynamics have been happening, things can look different over time, right? Where, you know, at some point people might have, you know, the high cortisol, the high DHEA, the high, you know, testosterone. And then if we're sort of in this kind of situation where everything is being stimulated chronically, then we end up in sort of this like real burnout situation where hormones are plummeting and there's more kind of damage dysfunction there. But really, I'm kind of diving in and assessing a person's history, getting really uh, clear, getting a really clear understanding of what their symptoms are. um, And then also just what the heck is going on in their life, what's going on with their diet. And that will typically be just a good starting point in terms of a, a thorough assessment. And then, you know, kind of bringing in lab work from there to tie all the pieces together a little bit more so. But it's pretty amazing what you can gather from a really comprehensive assessment. I also have people fill out some questionnaires that I've developed, some kind of, you know, root cause questionnaires that help people to kind of tap into how their body's communicating with them, you know, what uh, symptoms are really kind of glaring and standing out, and that will help to narrow the focus as well. So it's not, you know, definitely not kind of a, a perfect process, but I think, you know, a really thorough assessment, kind of understanding symptoms, understanding the history timeline, and then bringing in lab data to sort of fill in the gaps or kind of confirm, you know, what we're probably already thinking. Mm-hmm. I know we want to talk about different types of stressors, but I'm going to bring that back for later because you just mentioned testing and I was just alluding to some testing stuff. So I know we want to talk about a couple topics yet, which would be testing around PCOS? Because it's a question people have automatically. They're like, well, how do I test my hormones? I'm like, oh, it's a big topic. Mm-hmm. So if you have someone that comes into your office and they have PCOS, what are some testing that you may or may not opt for? Do you like, or is there any conventional blood markers that you might tell a listener that this could be a useful thing as part of your treatment pie or not really? So what kind of testing might you like look at for PCOS and specifically adrenal PCOS? Because we're kind of leaning toward that a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it definitely depends on the person in general. I would love if, you know, an individual came to work with me and they already, you know, had a workup done with some of the kind of more basic routine type things to get even a starting point. Sometimes they have that. Oftentimes they don't, which is okay, but definitely at least having, you know, a full thyroid panel, a good kind of complete assessment of, you know, blood sugar, And then ideally having, you know, just basic blood labs on androgens. So like your free testosterone, total testosterone, DHEAS, your androstenedione. So kind of a a good picture of what's going on with androgens. Again, if someone's on hormonal birth control, which I find that that sometimes women, 
you know, even without a PCOS diagnosis will be, you know, if they've been experiencing some of these symptoms or they had irregular cycles or they're dealing with, you know, cystic acne, sometimes they're put on, you know, the birth control without any of the investigative work, in which case we can't, you know, kind of assess what's going on hormonally the way that we would if someone was off of birth control. But yeah, so I would say full kind of, you know, complete look at blood sugar, definitely a full thyroid panel, and then, you know, having a good assessment of androgens, if we're able to look at those would be really helpful. Lipid panel, vitamin D, I'd say those are the things I like to have for people right off the bat. And then, you know, if they haven't gotten those or they can't get those just kind of from their conventional provider, their PCP, I'll, you know, often run those basics. But what I really like to do is be able to kind of bring in more of that advanced testing like a Dutch test or a GI map or things like that, that are going to give us different information, a different look at things to kind of assess alongside the uh, symptoms and, and kind of the clinical assessment. Yeah, they help you fill in some of the root causes of why even those blood markers can look off, right? So something I wanted to talk about is... PCOS versus hypothalamic amenorrhea. So hypothalamic amenorrhea being the absence of a menstrual cycle. So true or false, most adrenal PCOS includes hypothalamic amenorrhea, but not all hypothalamic, I just made this up like a minute ago, but not all hypothalamic amenorrhea is PCOS. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to get fun. I'm trying to get fun here, Jillian. Most most or a lot of adrenal PCOS cases include hypothalamic amenorrhea, but not all hypothalamic amenorrhea is PCOS or adrenal PCOS. True. <laughs> all, right. all right. Well, let's just characterize the difference a little bit. And I think let's just pull that together because sometimes it's like we've talked about a lot of things and we did kind of touch on this already, how PCOS is one of three criteria. And by the way, if I say something wrong, because this is your like this is like your niche, just correct me. Cause this is how I perceive it as someone who's worked with PCOS, but it's not like my only thing. Yeah. Feel free to correct me at any time. So I want to just hear like, do we ever see hypothalamic amenorrhea being kind of misdiagnosed as adrenal PCOS or what are you thinking here? Yes. So I definitely see fairly often hypothalamic amenorrhea that is misdiagnosed as PCOS. There can be a lot of similarities absent or regular cycles being, you know, the the biggest one, both with PCOS and with hypothalamic amenorrhea, there, there can be those polycystic appearing ovaries or the large number of, you know, those immature follicles. So there are a lot of similarities that can make it a little bit confusing or kind of, you know, there's some overlap essentially. The other thing is that because, you know, so with this adrenal what a lot of people don't realize, I think, is when we think about PCOS and, you know, androgens or this category of hormones that are elevated that drive, you know, the hirsutism, the unwanted hair growth that you were describing, you know, cystic acne, things like that. When we think of PCOS, often we just think about the ovaries, you know, overproducing androgens. But the adrenals, the adrenal glands produce a large proportion of androgens as well or certain types of androgens. So you can have normal functioning ovaries and kind of nothing going on there. All the overproduction of androgens via the adrenals and those same symptoms, right? So if you are putting a lot of stress on the body from under eating, over exercising, you can experience, you know, abnormalities with androgens that are unrelated to what's going on with the ovaries. So you can also experience some of those, you know, kind of classic PCOS symptoms in terms of, you know, the cystic acne, the unwanted hair growth. So 
things can look similar with certain labs. Things can look very similar with some of the outward symptoms that women deal with, but they are two very, you know, kind of very, very different things. And it's, you know, something that I do see often, like I said, is just, okay, someone actually has hypothalamic amenorrhea, but they're presenting with a lot of PCOS-like symptoms, which, you know, are being misdiagnosed as the hypothalamic amenorrhea, essentially. And there's no kind of one set thing that's going to differentiate to like, okay, I can do this one lab test and it's going to tell me which it is, but there is, and that's where you get kind of deeper into like symptom assessment. And then also just looking at more complete labs to be able to kind of tease things apart, to be able to differentiate. And that is very, very important, you know, to be able to identify if it's a hypothalamic amenorrhea situation, you know, or if it's a PCOS situation, because even though the foundations like we're talking about are all important and similar, we want to make sure we're eating enough, balancing blood sugar, you know, interventions would be similar. If it's a true hypothalamic amenorrhea situation, that definitely needs to be identified in my opinion. Sure thing. You know, you mentioned the undeveloped follicles and we were, I was kind of like complaining. Do we like this word, cysts? This is like another conversation I've had over the years. It's, they've talked about how, yeah, it's really not the best uh, name for this condition, but it's taken too long to get recognition the way it is. So we're not going to change the name. How do you feel about the word cysts in this whole context? Like for me, I'm like, I prefer undeveloped follicles personally, but I know cysts isn't, cysts just sounds terrible for some reason in my brain. Do you have any opinion here? Oh my gosh. I feel the exact same way. And it just, it's not an accurate representation of what's going on. Right. So, you know, if you look at kind of polycystic appearing ovaries on an ultrasound, it will appear cyst-like in terms of that string, you know, string of pearls that it's described as, but they're not cysts at all. So it's very confusing. And I feel like I actually spent a lot of time trying to explain to, yes, it's annoying. Well, it's called this, but these actually aren't cysts at all. So I have no idea why we still call it this. And I think a lot of uh, practitioners feel the same way where it's like, all right, when are we going to, you know, regroup and adjust the name here since it has nothing to do with actual cysts? Never. It's never going to happen. This took me back to, this is a super random question. You may not even want to answer it, but this takes me back to, uh, I cannot remember. This is like a few years ago when I used to, like I was exploring the use of certain types of enzymes away from food. The heck did we call it? Proteolytic? Proteolytic yep. where it digests tissue. Do you ever use proteolytic enzymes in regard to cysts? Me neither. Just wondering. <laughs> in regards to cysts, I do not. Right. Yes, yes, yes. One thing I'll well, say on the, the topic of, you know, PCOS to hypothalamic amenorrhea and that, okay, there's no perfect way to, you know, differentiate. But the things that I would make sure to push for would be an assessment of LH to FSH ratio, and then also making sure that you're getting that complete blood sugar panel done in terms of assessing a fasting insulin. Oftentimes in like a true hypothalamic amenorrhea situation, a a fasting insulin will be, you know, really low and the LH to FSH ratio will be low as well in comparison to a PCOS situation where often the, you know, LH to FSH ratio is high or higher, not always, but often that's what makes it confusing. There's no set rules. And then, you know, like we had mentioned, there can often be issues with, with insulin, even just kind of low grade elevations. Thanks for differentiating that. I think you should go ahead and explain what LH and FSH are, because it doesn't get talked about very often. So if you will just touch on or at least like elaborate just a little bit on that and talk Mm -hmm. about why the ratio is low, I think that would be helpful. 
Yeah, so basically LH is stands for luteinizing hormone, FSH stands for uh, follicle stimulating hormone, and basically these are the pituitary hormones that are kind of orchestrating or kind of governing what's going on with the menstrual cycle like behind the scenes. I'll often refer to them as like backup dancers, you know, to clients where it's like it. we have our backup dancers, we have our like stars of the show which is going to be our, you know, sex hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. But, you know, LH and FSH are, are super important, you know, since they play a really big role. And like I said, kind of orchestrating or governing what's going on with the menstrual cycle. So when it comes to PCOS specifically, actually to take a step back in terms of what these guys are doing, basically they are making sure in a normal situation that we have a follicles, multiple follicles uh, developing throughout the menstrual cycle. So follicles being like the little sacs on the ovaries that, you know, hold our eggs essentially. So basically we are making sure that these follicles are developing and eventually the kind of healthiest, biggest, strongest, you know, follicle is going to release an egg. That's ovulation in the menstrual cycle where we can get pregnant or not get pregnant. So you know, that's kind of what LH and FSH are doing behind the scenes in terms of the background communication between the brain, the ovaries, to make sure that we're ovulating regularly. And what happens with PCOS is that there is some disruption in that communication, essentially, where we have lots of immature follicles on the ovaries, and we don't get kind of that one follicle that hits a point where it's going to be fully mature and mature enough to release an egg or to ovulate. So that's kind of happening behind the scenes, if that makes sense. No, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. So we talked about testing and then we went back and talked a little bit more about testing, which I think was useful. And we talked about some lesser known testing, LH and FSH testing and the ratio for that. You clarified hypothalamic amenorrhea and PCOS because they, that those can end up in the same basket and maybe we do some of the same interventions, but class clarifying those, there are some nuance to both, of course. So some other things I do want to cover before we're done here would be in your program, I was looking at your program modules before we jumped on the call today, and I saw that you had down support of food and supplements. So we don't have to get into supplementation because I feel like it can, can be kind of a topic on its own. But I do want to talk about people always want to ask about like, what can I eat for blah, blah, blah. And I'm sometimes like when this question comes up, I'm like, it's not really like that. But with PCOS, there is some like blood sugar supportive stuff. So I'd love to hear like maybe three things, five things, two things, whatever you want to share, just because I feel like it's a question people like to ask. So I wanted to ask it for them for you. So in terms of you know, specific foods. What I always like to emphasize, which I think we're very, you know, similar in this approach is that the foundations always come first, right? So getting, you know, fixated on or too zoomed in on like specific food is going to be a waste of energy if we haven't, you know, developed that really kind of solid foundation. Um, Before before we get into foods, I'm going to ask for us to establish the foundation, blood sugar, stress, what else do you want to put under the foundation that must be looking good before it really matters about superfoods? Yeah. So I would say meal timing. So like meal frequency, meal composition, those are, you know, absolutely essential, you know, from a food perspective before diving into, you know, more zoomed in approaches with like singular foods. Mm -hmm. But I would even say too, that before you're diving in and focusing on, you know, specific foods and kind of therapeutic supplements and things like that, you know, kind of optimizing the sleep schedule and, you know, uh, supporting circadian rhythms and, 
you know, starting to think about, you know, stress and, you know, stress reduction or stress outlets, recovery for the body. So I think all of those diet and lifestyle basics are important first and foremost. So balance blood sugar, you know, start exploring. I, I always talk about stress in an interesting way. I don't know if you do this at all, but I think stress feels like just this, I don't know, it's like so ambiguous. I feel like when people are thinking about it, talking about And sometimes I think it's just very off-putting to say, you know, manage stress or reduce stress. And I think there's a lot of nuance there, but definitely getting, I think, real about stress, starting to at least check in with your body, see if there's opportunities for outlets for recovery. I would say those are some of the big ones. And then once we kind of lay the, the foundation with those pieces... Actually, and alongside that too, I would take a good hard look at how like the movement and exercise routine is supporting things. You know, I often work with women with PCOS that are, you know, doing all the things with exercise in, you know, kind of that are very well intended basically in terms of wanting to improve their PCOS, but we end up in like this over-exercising type situation. So I think just making sure all of those things are well balanced and actually supporting the body, not creating more stress. And then you can kind of dive in and focus more so on specific foods and things that, you know, might be really supportive. And, you know, examples of what that might look like would be, you know, I think, well, really, we have data that says from a kind of PCOS type perspective, most women with PCOS do experience chronic low-grade inflammation to some degree, some more severe than others. But something I always like to do after we create that supportive foundation with food, so meal frequency, meal composition, is starting to think about things like anti-inflammatory foods specifically. That could be things like, you know, broccoli sprouts and fermented foods and, you know, finding these foods that really sort of pack a punch with, you know, supporting the gut, lowering inflammation is an example of, you know, something I might dive into. So in interest of time and being considerate of that, um, let's kind of wrap up a little bit here. So, so far we've covered, and I think there could be a, we could do a part two on circadian stuff. And I know that was an an area that you've really enjoyed. It'd be fun for us to compare notes on that because I was doing an adrenal program a couple of years ago and I just got so into circadian rhythm stuff. And I was like, man, this is old research that no one ever did anything with (laughs) from like the eighties. And so it'd be fun to chat through that a little bit. So we can reschedule a circadian rhythm episode, but we talked about PCOS myths. We talked about the types that we lightly covered the types of PCOS, what you see most commonly in practice, what the issues are with what the most common type is and how that's not serving the type of PCOS we kind of dove into, which was adrenal PCOS. We characterized uh, hypothalamic amenorrhea versus PCOS, we dove in just a touch. We covered like different labs that may be useful, including thyroid, blood sugar, and then you gave specifics around different other hormones that may be useful related to androgens and FSH, LH, et cetera. Uh, We talked about... We just touched a little bit on meal composition, stress or circadian rhythm and stress being ambiguous and then just mentioned food a little bit. So the question that people want to know the most or we want to make sure we're always covering as we wrap these episodes up is, okay, so I've either DIY or diagnosed, self-diagnosed myself with PCOS based on the Rotterdam criteria that you mentioned earlier, two of three positive symptoms, which again would have been signs of that elevated testosterone, like hirsutism, male pattern, uh, hair loss, irregular cycles or lack of a cycle and undeveloped follicles. And we lamented about the cyst word. So 
if someone is like listening to this and feeling like, ooh, boom, 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 this is why I listen to this. And I really am getting crappy advice, like eat less and exercise more from my provider. What do you want to tell that person is the number one starting point for today or tomorrow for them? If a person thinks they have PCOS or they're diagnosed and they that's the only advice they've received, where to start? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like food and nutrition is the best place to start, you know, and specifically, I think with blood sugar balance. So making sure you're eating three well-rounded meals a day and kind of filling in any long gaps with, you know, well-rounded snack. And, you know, generally I think something I just see, which it, you know, isn't super sexy or exciting, but something I see often with women is just like not eating enough protein, you know, which can make a huge difference uh, with something like blood sugar going to be foundational. So, you know, maybe just starting by doing a, an audit of protein intake and trying to get, you know, good high quality protein source at every single meal. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, something like that would be a, a starting point. Is that kind of what we were? Yeah, no, it's great. And actually you're totally right. That's such a profound thing and such an easy thing to accidentally yeah. not be doing. It's just really easy to not be doing a lot of it. It's like for so long, they talked about too much protein and now we're just kind of fighting with like, but really we do need protein. We need to digest it well. So we could keep talking about this all day, but you have lots of resources online, like a lot. So where can people find you online, Jillian? Yeah. So you can find me on my website, jilliangreaves.com. And I have more information there in terms of free resources, tons of articles and different things that actually kind of dive into some of these PCOS topics in more depth. And then I also have a nutrition course specific to PCOS uh, called Eat Daily or PCOS. And I also have a comprehensive group program called the Empowered PCOS uh, Group Program for people that really kind of want to do a deep dive, you know, in supporting their PCOS. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on today and for talking to me about PCOS and at all, <laughs> all the other things related to it. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I know I feel like we could do this for forever. <laughs> I know. Sharing and reviewing this podcast is the best way to help us succeed with our mission to help integrate the best of East and West and empower you to raise the bar on your health story. Just go to reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. That's reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. And you'll be taken directly to a page where you can insert your review and hit post.